There's one memory device that humans use more than any other in order to remember something important. That's right. There's one memory device that humans use more than any other in order to remember something important. And that memory device is repetition. 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 That memory device that helps us remember something very important is repetition. So, <laughs> what is the one memory device humans use more than any other in order to remember something important? Repetition. repetition. See, you remembered. Um, okay, I think we get the terrible joke. Enough of that. Repetition is used to really drive a point home. And that's true for scripture as it's true in kindergarten. You repeat it over and over until it sinks through your thick skull and you get it. See, we just spent four weeks discussing Acts 2. Uh, one week to discuss the miraculous arrival of the Holy Spirit and three weeks to discuss Peter's sermon about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And today's passage, Acts 3, all of Acts 3, believe it or not, we're going to get through a whole chapter today. Today's passage follows the exact same pattern. First, there's a wonderful miracle, which gains the attention of everyone around, leaving them asking questions, questions which Peter steps up to address with a powerhouse sermon. That's right, folks. It's Kerygma Part 2, the sequel, Preach Harder. And like all good sequels, the stakes get raised. As we'll see next week in Acts 4, this miracle and the accompanying, accompanying sermon land our heroes in some hot water. But it's not just the outline of chapter 3 that mirrors and repeats the outline of chapter 2. The content of the sermon is very similar as well, since it's a repetition of the kerygma. Both the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 and the sermon here in Acts 3 review the life of Jesus. They cite scripture. They establish humanity's guilt. They examine God's ancient plan, and they, all, they both feature a call to repentance. And yet... This is a very different sermon. All of that is still here in this sermon, but it's very different. As we'll see, it's loaded with beautiful and powerful new elements about Jesus introduced by Peter. But the point of all this discussion about repetition is this. Both Acts 2 and Acts 3 mirror each other so closely because Luke wants us to understand a fundamental truth about the church. That though Jesus is gone, his mighty power and his mission of salvation remain, as evidenced by these back-to-back -back miracles, the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the miracle we're going to examine today. And as Peter declares in both chapters, those miracles point to Jesus being Lord and Messiah, offering forgiveness to those who repent. Everything is done in his name and for his name. Everything is done in his name and for his name. Everything is done in his name and for his name. It's important, so I'm repeating it. If you don't like the repetition, take it up with Luke. He's the one who started it. So let's read the first part of the story, the healing miracle of Acts 3, verses 1 to 10. So we'll stop at 10. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man, lame from birth, was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. 
Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet and began to walk. Then walking, leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was the same lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade, where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. We'll stop there for now. After the sermon in Acts 2, we were told that the apostles performed many wonders and signs and miracles during the first days of the early church. And while we don't know many of the details about many of those wonders and signs and miracles, Luke does pause on this particular miracle to give it some special elaboration. In the same way that someone working in downtown Edmonton might encounter the same homeless gentleman every day around the corner, Tim Hortons just becomes a, somebody familiar that you see all the time. Uh, everyone in the courtyard of the temple would have been familiar with this disabled beggar. Crippled from birth, he sat at the gates every day, relying on the pity and kindness of others to get his daily needs met. His status in society was very low, as evidenced by his presence at the beautiful gate, which was the barrier separating Gentiles from the rest of the temple. As you can see, there's different walls that you could enter to get closer and closer to the, the proper temple, the, the sanctuary. And as you can see here, there was um, the, the court of the Gentiles, which he sat at the gate that entered into the next closer courtyard, which was the court of women, followed by the court of Israel, then the court of priests, then the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. So each concentric circle was, you could only go if you were considered holier with each level. So up to the Holy of Holies in which the high priest, one guy could only go in one time a year. That was the presence of God. And all the way back to the Gentiles who were just barely allowed in the presence of the temple. And this man, his social statting, his social status as an outsider is confirmed by where he sat. This was the order of holiness in the eyes of the Israelites. And this poor man was on the very edge of acceptability in Jewish culture. He is an outsider on the lowest rungs of the social ladder. He is as disabled in dignity as he is in mobility. That is until two apostles happen by one fateful afternoon. Peter commands the man's attention with a similar authority and compassion illustrated by Jesus. Meeting eyes with Peter, as he had met eyes with countless worshippers over the days and the weeks and the years of his destitution, the beggar's gaze turns from desperation to expectation. He knows that when somebody says, look at him, that he can expect something. But Peter, Peter is committed to living in the same lifestyle as his penniless master. Peter has nothing of worth to give this man. Well, nothing of earthly worth. And so Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but I am giving you what I do have. Now imagine this broken man's reaction. If Peter had handed him a new robe or cloak or better yet, a bag full of silver, what would his reaction have been? He would have celebrated. He would have been very thankful. That would have been the very greatest gift he would hope to receive after meeting eyes with this authoritative stranger. But instead, he receives something of far greater worth, a treasure more vast than he ever could have imagined. And the beggar's response is far greater as well. That's because in absence of a gift given in the name of Mammon, that merciless god of comfort and prestige and wealth, Peter instead gives a gift of compassion in the merciful name of the servant king from Nazareth the gift of wholeness, of redemption, 
of salvation. A gift that could not be given by the wisdom of any doctor or by the authority of any king or by the power of any false God. The power of healing, healing of the body, the heart, and the community can only truly come as a gift in the name of the Father's Son, Jesus. The power of healing, true healing, not just healing a wound. Jesus heals the body, but he does more than just heal the body. He heals the man's status in the community. He is now somebody on par with the other worshipers. He is reintroduced to his people. It's a gift. It's, it's a healing that only Jesus can offer. He still offers the gift of a healed community today. And so had he been given gold, the beggar would have praised Peter. Thank you, Peter. Instead, he's given a miracle. And the praise goes to the one who truly deserves it. Jesus, the Savior. The kind of praise that comes with experiencing the fullness of grace. That's what this man shows. The kind of praise that comes when you experience grace in all its fullness. The kind of praise that comes with walking forward in life in new and powerful ways for the first time. The kind of praise that comes with being made whole again. Return to the community you had been forced out of through no fault of your own. The kind of praise that doesn't just lead to shouts of joy, but to leaps of joy on new legs. The kind of praise that propels you into a temple courtyard full of proper, dignified, respectful worshipers and totally makes a dancing fool of yourself because you cannot contain your wonder and your gratitude and your thankfulness to the one who healed you in his powerful name. This man makes a complete fool of himself. He acts completely undignified. And there's precedence for that. David did the same thing when he celebrated a great victory. He's dancing through the streets and people look and they sneer at him. What's he doing? This man does the same thing. He prances through the courtyard. He can't contain his joy. Can you imagine walking for the first time as a grown man? What that experience would be like? No wonder he doesn't just walk. He skips, he parades, he prances. He, he cannot contain his joy. That's the response of a truly saved man. A man who has experienced the authority of grace. That's right. In Jesus's kingdom, money has no power. In Jesus's kingdom, money has no power. It has a purpose, but it has no power. Mammon is a lying Lord and a misleading Messiah. It would do the church well to remember this, since the church still often gets ensnared by the nets of power and prestige and profit. There's a great story I read about in one of my commentaries about this story of Thomas Aquinas. Um, Thomas Aquinas confronted the corrupt Pope Innocent II, just as the Pope was counting out a large sum of money. And the Pope said to Thomas, you see, the church can no longer say, as Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Because we got lots of silver, we got lots of gold. So Peter said it, but we don't need to say it anymore. And Thomas's reply to Pope Innocent is perfect. He said, true, Holy Father, but neither can she now say rise and walk. It's a great line. You can have all the money and power you want, but it's going to diminish your ministry. It's going to rob you of the real power. What horse? Doesn't big deal. So you got money. So does the world. Just another excellent reminder about who we will choose to worship. Do we offer the world just another place to put their money or are we a place to receive healing and grace? Are we known for taking or for offering? Do we seek to raise our profit margins or do we seek to raise up the outcast? The question is, church, which master will we serve? Because we can only serve one. So Jesus has again proven himself as Lord and Messiah. 
full of power and grace, ushering in a new age where, as the prophet Isaiah wrote hundreds of years earlier, this is Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, when he arrives, the lame man will leap like a deer. In those coming days, the lame man will get up and leap. Well, it's happening. And as you would expect, just as in Acts 2, the wonder of this miracle captures some attention from the people around them. They know who this guy is. The crowds in the temple know that this man is not a fraud. They've known of his disability since his birth, and they've grown accustomed to avoiding his pleading eyes as they enter through the beautiful gate into the temple courtyard. And now, as the crowd prays in the temple, he comes prancing in with those fishermen from Galilee, shouting hosannas, shouting praises to the Most High. And so Peter, again, fueled by the Holy Spirit, seizes the moment and answers their questions with the expert framework of explanations and eyewitness defense for the gospel that we know as the kerygma, which he preaches vehemently and powerfully to his captive audience in verses 11 to 26. So let's read that together. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what's so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. This is the same Jesus whom you handed over and rejected before Pilate, despite Pilate's decision to release him. You rejected this holy, righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, Through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you people of Israel to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. So did you see elements of the kerygma? Here's the kerygma. Do you see this in this sermon? It's all there. Do we see Peter highlighting the historical details of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and glorification? Yes. An example is verse 15, which says God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to this. God raised him up. And it's historical. It happened. We know it happened because we are witnesses of it. Does Peter utilize the Old Testament to bring out fulfilled prophecy in God's plan? Yes, lots, actually. Lots and lots of that here. An example is in verse 18 when he says, This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. Also, note how Peter emphasizes human responsibility. He states devastatingly in verse 14 that, You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer, murderer be released to you instead. Yikes, that is condemning. 
and totally true. Moving on to number two there of the kerygma, note the theology of Jesus' Lord and Messiahship. And we're going to discuss this a little bit later. It's, it's how Peter presents Jesus as Lord and Messiah is profound and beautiful. And we're going we're gonna to draw it out a little bit more. And finally, we have the response that we're called to have. This time, the call to repentance comes right in the middle of the sermon in verse 19. He says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He doesn't end with the call to repentance. Here he puts it right in the middle. So this sermon, it doesn't sound much like sermon, like Peter's first sermon. Word-wise, they're very different. And he, he makes different points in different ways. He uses different scripture. He mentions different things about Jesus. So it's very different. But it does check all the essential boxes of the earliest proclamations of the apostles. This sermon is definitely the kerygma. And the thing that stands out about Peter's sermon is the thing that gets repeated throughout his sermon. The thing that shapes and guides and motivates and explains everything Peter is saying. And that is the name of Jesus. It comes up over and over and it comes up in super important parts of the sermon. The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is a crucial aspect of this masterpiece speech. So first of all, Peter clarifies how the miracle happened. They're wondering, how could this be? The man wasn't healed because of some special power or piety possessed by Peter or John. He wasn't healed because there's anything special about Peter. It's not that Peter and John are divine figures. It's not that they are especially holy. It's not that they manage the proper incantation of magic words. It's not a magic trick that's happening. It's not because of them in any way, shape, or form. This miracle does not happen because of Peter. The man was not healed because of the apostles. This is a wonderful... Uh, th- th- these are Peter's words. I'm not making this up. This is, that's what Peter says. Why stared us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Peter had a part to play, but the man isn't healed because of Peter. Peter's words are a wonderful and humble reflection of John the Baptist's words in John 3.30. And those were, you may have noticed that's what was up during communion time at the end of the You Must Increase song. We sang the words of John. You must increase, I must decrease. You must become greater and I must become less. That's how it works if you're choosing to follow Jesus. It's not for our own glory that amazing things occur in the kingdom. It's not so we look good. It's not so people like us. Peter and John, who had just weeks prior to this, sat around a table with Jesus and heard Jesus speak of his impending death and ignored all of that. Why? Because they were busy arguing over which of them was the greatest. It's so pathetic. But worse than that, it's so human. And we fall into the same trap. Which of us is greatest? Who's the best? Who does the most work? That's what they're busy. They're they're arguing with 10 other ego stroking fools at the table about which of them is the greatest in the midst of Jesus saying, by the way, I'm going to die like a slave for you. So Peter's newfound humility here is very refreshing. Indeed. He finally has begun to understand. He's no longer bickering over who's the greatest. He's acknowledging that anything he does isn't about a greatness of him. It's about the greatness of the God who works through him. The man was not healed because of anything special about Peter or John. So then, how does the miracle occur? If it's not Peter who's powerful, how did this happen? Well, verse 16 makes the answer abundantly clear, and it involves both parties in the equation. It involves the healer and the healed. It says, by faith, 
In the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Through faith, which is an active role of the one being healed, through faith in the name of Jesus, the one who does the healing. His name, Jesus' name, is his identity. And his identity is this, the Messiah, the Savior, the Healer, the one who taught and demonstrated his Father's love, who was crucified and resurrected, and who reigns in authority as the Son of the Most High God. That's whose name brought healing. It's the powerful and holy and loving name of Jesus that defies science and medicine and social standing and religious limitations. Jesus breaks through all of those. None of those are a barrier to him in any way. And it's the beggar's desperate willingness to believe in the power of that name that leads to him dancing through the courtyards of the temple, celebrating in the presence of God. The presence of God, which, by the way, they're in the temple, right? Where the presence of God was to be found. Well, he's celebrating in the presence of God, but that has nothing to do with the dusty old building of stone and gold and blood and bronze. The presence of God has nothing to do with that building anymore. The presence of God is in Peter. The presence of God is in John. And now the presence of God is in a hopeless, helpless beggar willing to entrust his life to the pierced hands of a crucified Christ. That's where the presence of God is. It's faith that healed the beggar, not Peter. Faith in Jesus' name. We tend to think, I know I fall into this trap, I'm sure you do too, that the great things we do happen because we are great. This story reminds us powerfully that no, there's nothing great about me. I've never given a sermon in which the words I've given are my own words. I've never played drums in which the beat that I give is my own beat. You've never, whatever it is you do to help, (laughs) whether it's shovel a sidewalk or prepare a snack or lead a Sunday school or head a committee. None of those things do you do because you are great. You do those things because he is great and you recognize his greatness and you're willing to serve him in those ways. And his greatness pours through you and it shines through you. And it's made known to the world around you because you submit to his greatness. Faith in Jesus's name is what makes great things happen. In this passage, names play an important role in bringing glory to the name of Jesus. Although the beggar is never named, the beggar is anonymous, but his anonymity reinforces the fact that our identity is first and foremost as redeemed children of God. He doesn't need a name. His primary identity is as one who brings praise to God. Peter and John are named. They get names, but they're quick to deflect any glory off of their reputations and redirect it to the name worthy of all praise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are named in this passage conspicuously so, since they are the names of the founding fathers of faith, the names of men called by God to have faith in his plan to set apart a special nation of his own. Faith comes through these men, and the names of the patriarchs bore tremendous authority to Peter's audience. To invoke the name of, to invoke the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes it clear that the events of Jesus' life were no accident. They were just as planned as, as Abraham's call or as Jacob's redemption. They were planned, even as the building plans for the foundation of human faith were being worked through God's earliest servants. And another key moment in scripture where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are name dropped to add weight to the occasion. You want to know another time when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are named? In Exodus 3, the moment when the creator, appearing as a burning bush, first reveals his own name, Yahweh, to his people. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and my name... My name for all time will be Yahweh. 
The names of the patriarchs give historical precedence and significance to the revelation of God's own saving name. Before naming his name, he names the name of the names of the men that he gave a name to. Even God does this. Through his servants, God makes his name known. He made his name known through Abraham, the father of faith. He made his name known through Jacob, the namesake of God's people, Israel. They're named after this guy. God's people are named literally after Jacob. And he made his name known through Moses, who was the first human to learn the divine name of the almighty. Moses, that same Moses who is named here in Acts 3. His name appears because he was Israel's first great prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses made a really important prophecy. Prophecy that shaped the understanding of the Jewish people throughout history, even still today. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied of a coming prophet, a prophet like Moses, only greater. And Moses made it clear that God's people were to listen to this great prophet for fear of being cut off from the community. If you don't listen, you are no longer God's people. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 18. One is coming who is very much like me. You have to listen to him. Don't miss it. Well, Peter is emphatic that this great prophet, this second Moses has arrived and he has a name. And that name is Jesus. It's like Peter saying, hey, if you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. I'm nobody. I'm just a fisherman from Galilee. But here's a familiar name that you might find a bit more authoritative. So how about, oh, I don't know, Moses, giver of the law, representative of God to the people and of the people to God, prophet of Yahweh. How about him? You going to listen to him? You should. That's a name with some authority. And Moses, he thinks that you should listen to this man named Jesus. The last name that, that we find here, the last time that uh, Peter name drops someone is Samuel, right at the very end of the sermon. Samuel uh, was the second great prophet of, of Israel. And Samuel was the one who made a king out of a shepherd, humble little shepherd boy named David. That was Samuel's role. And we see a similar thing happening here with Jesus. A humble little carpenter's son, raised up, exalted, as the name above all names. All these names show up in Peter's sermon and they point to the authority of one big name, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But it's not just what other famous names say about Jesus that makes the sermon spectacular. Peter does a good job of describing the nature of the name of Jesus. And this is how we're going to close this morning. What does the name of Jesus mean? Who is this Jesus who is being named? What is he like? What does he do? Who is he? Well, first of all, Jesus is a servant, as referenced by the prophets, especially Isaiah. He is a servant, not just a servant, a suffering servant. And Peter begins and ends his sermon by drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is a servant. In verse 13 and 26, he begins and ends. He bookends everything about Jesus is bookended by the fact that he is a suffering servant. According to Peter, all the glory Jesus has received is due to his faithfulness as a servant. That's why he is glorified is because he was faithful even to the cross. Moreover, Jesus identifies with the suffering of a broken, unwanted outsider because as God's slave, that's exactly the identity that Jesus was given as well. A broken, unwanted, unloved outsider, misunderstood, uncared for. So it's no wonder that Jesus comforts the suffering and gives status to those who are as lowly as slaves. It's no wonder he hears the cries of the anguished and the grieving and the impoverished and the unloved and the lonely. It's no wonder he calls his followers to treat 
the hungry and the hurting as family. It's no wonder he brings glory to his name by giving the nameless a taste of his glory. Because his name had been unglorious. Jesus was an incredibly common name. It still is. There's nothing spectacular about the name Jesus. What's spectacular is about all the glory contained in the man who bore that name. His name was unglorious. His identity was that of a homeless, lonely, broken, oppressed, and suffering servant. And because of all this, his name was elevated to the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of that is because his name was unglorious. He took the position of a slave, a servant. Because Jesus is, as Peter declares in verse 14, using the language of the Old Testament, the holy and righteous one. And since he was a servant to his father and to others, we are called to be servants to his father and to others as well. And do you like how only one week after having a purpose statement, I incorporated it in a sermon. Since he was servant to his father and to others, we are called to be servants to his father and to others as well. His name is that of a suffering servant. And because of that, his name becomes that of a king and a savior. You cannot experience glory unless you're willing to experience suffering servanthood. That's true for Jesus. It was true of the prophets. It's true for you and me. So in his name is a prophet to be listened to, a servant to be emulated, a Lord to be submitted to, and a Messiah to be worshipped. But there's one more aspect of the name of Jesus I need to mention before I finish. It's a beautiful little phrase that shows up in verse 15, right in the middle of the most devastating paradox in history. You rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed, and here it is, the author of life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him back up from the dead. Human plan and God's plan don't always mix. Here, the, the contrast is stark and it is ugly and it is powerful. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And I love that phrase, author of life. Isn't that a powerful title? It's such a perfect description of Jesus's name. Sure, he is Lord and he is judge and he is prophet and king. He is all those things, but he uses all those things to bring life. Just as his father did and does. Jesus offers life. He gives life. His way leads to life. He was not sent to judge, as it says in John 3, 17. He didn't come in the, into the world to judge it, but to save it. If he had come to judge, if that was Jesus's primary role, to come to the world to judge the world, then Peter would not say what he says in verse 17. Let's read verse 17. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. If Jesus had come first as judge, Peter never would have said that. He didn't come first as judge. His judgment is a runoff of, of the primary aspect of his name, and that is love, suffering servant. He judges because he loves. He judges because he's holy. But he didn't, didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bring life, salvation. He was sent not to judge, but to save. And in verse 17, Peter assigns blame for Jesus' death on all humanity, but then he immediately exonerates humanity for their ignorance, including who? This is important. He doesn't just point to the crowd and say, you did this in ignorance. Who else does he say was ignorant? The leaders, the rulers. Do you remember when we studied Luke? I hammered it into our heads that these leaders 
are as far away from the will as God as possible. These leaders had actively sought to destroy Jesus. They, they plotted and they, they planned against him. Their one wish, and their wish was based in, in self-righteousness and a misunderstanding of God and his will. Their one wish was to crush Jesus because Jesus made them look bad. They are the most obvious and the most literal enemies of Jesus there is, right? They are the supreme villains in the gospel of Luke. And yet, even they are offered forgiveness from this author of life. They literally handed him over to be crucified. They literally cheered as his blood was shed. That, is, that was their goal. That was what they wanted. They literally killed the author of life. And Peter says to them, you didn't understand. Just as Jesus said to them from the cross, forgive them because they don't understand. You do this in ignorance. You enemies of the Messiah. You misunderstanders of God's will. You, you crucifiers of the Christ. Even you can have forgiveness. They need not experience damnation and judgment because they were ignorant to the full identity of this man named Jesus. And so the author of life extends the offer of life to all who are willing to receive it. He came to fix life, to redeem life, to save life. In fact, he once said that he is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His name, in short, is life. And there is no enemy of his name that he is unwilling to extend life and redemption and forgiveness to. And that includes you. That includes whoever there is in your life who you don't like and you most want to see punished by God. There is no enemy so far away that they are outside the scope of his forgiveness and his grace and his redemption and his life. What a savior, what a king, and what a name. So there you have it. The saving name of Jesus, which we are called to respond to in faith. The name of a prophet, Lord, savior, servant, and author of life. And now, since we established that repetition helps truth to sink in, I'm going to repeat this whole sermon again from the beginning, word for word, for you. I'm not. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the author of life. You are the author and architect and perfecter of life, and you give life to us. We would have no life apart from you. And this life that we do have, even though we live it so often away from you. Thank you that Peter's sermon makes it clear that, that you came to save and to redeem and to draw us back to you. Everything that we do, Father, help it to be for your namesake and not our namesake. Help us to become less so that you can become more. Your name is great and powerful and glorious. It's great and powerful and glorious because it's so simple, because it's so unglorious but you filled it with meaning because you submitted to your father. And I pray that Holy spirit, you would help us to do the same. Jesus, you are the author of life. You are the great prophet that Moses spoke of. And I pray that you would help us to listen to you and to your words. Um, each one of us is like this beggar, somebody broken who encounters you and is filled with joy. And we acknowledge that you make that happen. We love you, father. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, everyone. Have a great, have a great day.